Dear Grieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. In a few moments, we'll hear why veteran commentator Mary Kenny thinks the Catholic Church is judged too harshly these days, and also how the artist Rachel Fallon reckons with the Church's past in her piece The Map, which was made with Alice Maher as part of a project on Mary Magdalene at Rua Red in Tala, and moves to the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin this month. But first, earlier this week, in Rome, a new film entitled The Letter, A Message for Our Earth, received its premiere. The film features Pope Francis and, through the voices of young, indigenous and poor people, it tells the story of how the climate crisis is affecting life on Earth. One of the key figures in the film is Dr Lorna Gold, who was lead policy analyst for Trocra here in Ireland for many years and now chairs the Laudato Si movement. In the film, Lorna explains what, in its simplest terms, Laudato Si is. Laudato Si is a letter that Pope Francis has written to you. That, and that usually gets people, they're going, Pope Francis didn't write me a letter. I say, oh yes he did. He wrote you a letter. He wrote every person on the planet a letter to share his concerns about the state of the world. It's that simple, really. It's a letter from the Pope. And Lorna Gold is with me now. You're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thanks for having me on. As is often the case, Lorna, discussions around the environment and climate change are typically dominated by bigger countries and by powerful lobbies. But in the letter, you give voice to those who often go unheard, Who are the people we meet in the film and what happens when they sit down to talk with the Pope? So we meet five characters actually, but they represent four different voices in the film. The first one is Aruna Kande, who's a young man from Senegal and he is a climate refugee who had to flee his hometown as a child because of climate change. The second person is uh, Ridima Pandey, who is a young climate activist um, from India. Uh, She was 12 years old when we filmed uh, with Pope Francis last year. Then we meet Greg and Robin Asner, who are world-renowned ecologists who live in Hawaii. And they are documenting the coral reefs and how climate change is changing those reefs. And then finally, we have Chief Dada Borai, who is a chief in the Amazon rainforest. And these uh, four voices represent four groups that Pope Francis really points to in Laudato Si, who we, we don't really hear about when we talk about climate change. So the voice of the poor, the displaced by climate change, the voice of the youth, the voice of wildlife. Greg and Robin are there to kind of bring that voice of wildlife into this story. And then the voice of the indigenous peoples. What was it like when we met the Pope? It was quite extraordinary. There was a lot of nerves because it was the first time they'd been in such kind of grand surroundings of the Vatican. And it was the first time they'd met Pope Francis. But he put everybody at ease. And you'll see... When you watch the film, 
one of the things that was quite moving is Pope Francis started talking Spanish. He was meant to be speaking Italian, but he he speaks Spanish when he speaks from the heart. So it was it was a genuine encounter. How would you characterise Francis's analysis of the challenges faced by life on Earth, especially from climate change? I would say his response is, above all, an integral one. And what does that mean, an integral response? We can tend to put things in boxes. We think that climate change is over there, it's that we deal with that when we kind of do our recycling or we reduce our carbon emissions and that's that's the environmental piece over there. But Pope Francis' vision is much bigger than that. It's really about looking into ourselves and our lifestyle and calling each of us into a personal conversion, a conversion of heart. Above all, each of us doing our part to recognise and face up to the crisis that we're, we're facing today. And taking action and nobody can kind of prescribe what that action is for each of us. We each have to almost discover that ourselves and the film is really a good tool. Um, it's, it's beautiful to watch so it's more than a tool, it's a piece of art above all I think but it really connects people to where they can find, where each of us can find our part in this story. I really think and this is my own experience that each of us feels a bit heartbroken about the state of the world today, especially after the pandemic and now the war, and can all feel a bit overwhelming. The film is really about saying, okay, that's okay. But then to to move out of it, to move beyond it, to say, okay, well, there's lots of things I can do. There's lots of things my community do, can do, my parish can do. Whatever your community is, we can all really take on board the message of, of this film and the message of Laudato Si. There's an important connection, isn't there, Lorna, to to St. Francis of Assisi in the name of the letter, Laudato Si, which, of course, is also the name of the movement that you chair. For listeners who may not know, tell us about this phrase, Laudato Si. The words Laudato Si literally mean praise be. Um, And it's the phrase that St. Francis of Assisi used when he wrote the Canticle of Creation, that beautiful poem, which I'm sure many listeners will know, that talks about Brother Sun and Sister Moon. He wrote that on his deathbed. And what it really signifies is something that's very close to Pope Francis' heart. And it's really the essence of what this film is about. It's about rediscovering a certain way to look at the world, that looks at the world not as a problem that we have to solve but above all the world and our experience of life is a gift it's a gift that we have to contemplate almost every day when we wake up we discover that miracle almost with childlike eyes and that's what saint francis really teaches us that's not just a little bit of kind of emotional stardust put on top of everything else. In Laudato Si, the first chapter of Laudato Si is entirely given over to St Francis and this idea that we need to change how we look at the world because we can only save something. We can only really motivate ourselves to to do what needs to be done to protect this planet if we fall in love with it again. Lorna Gold, thank you very much for being with us this evening. 
Thank you. It's been my pleasure. The Letter, A Message for Our Earth, is available to watch free of charge on YouTube or via theletterfilm.org. And now we turn to prolific journalist, prize-winning playwright and one-time women's libber, Mary Kenny, who's written for over 30 newspapers and magazines during the course of her career, as well as authoring eight books, the latest of which is The Way We Were, Catholic Ireland Since 1922. Mary Kenny, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you. The notes on the cover of your book state that and I'll quote from them, Um, at a time when the values of Catholic Ireland are so often viewed in a negative light, your approach is a balanced one. Who do you have in mind um, as portraying the church in a a mostly negative light these days? Who are you thinking of there? Well, after all, the whole narrative of the scandals and uh, mother and baby homes and sexual abuse and so on has brought forth a a constant uh, stream of criticism, some of it very, very harsh. It's very strong on Twitter, for example, that you get uh, uh, quite a lot of sort of hate tweets against Catholicism, uh, you know, toxic masculinity, you know, horrible theocracy and and you know our intellectuals their whole approach is uh, extremely hostile consistently you know this these are very disproportionate um uh, views you know of our country basically you know i get stopped in the street uh, by older people and not so old people saying look my uncle was a missionary, you know, in Nigeria for 45 years. He was then went to Mexico. He served these people. He was a wonderful guy and he loved the people. My aunt, you know, went was in Bangalore, you know, all her life. She brought uh, hospitals and schools. She was a wonderful person. Uh, I mean, again, the sisters and the the priests from Ireland, because Ireland was a huge missionary nation, who went forth and really did a good job. You know, I mean, my own cousin, Maura Kenny, she taught in in apartheid South Africa for 25 years, and she insisted on teaching uh, children of all uh, races together, despite the apartheid regime. And I suppose... it's not the it's not the nuns and brothers or, or priests themselves who've made this point to me, but their relations. So there's quite a lot of uh, a silent majority of people who esteemed those who served willingly and with integrity. There's also quite a lot of people, after all, who've also benefited from. Catholic education from again that would go from Mary Robinson, you know, who had a wonderful education at Mount Anvil, to Peter Sutherland, who I also portray, who was of course um, uh, educated by the Jesuits of Gonzaga. So there, there's also that. I, I mean, there's another aspect, of course, which is open to critique, which is that Catholic Ireland, although we believed we had a classless society, it wasn't a classless society. There were great divisions of class, really not fully acknowledged at all, and a tremendous pursuit of respectability. And the examples you just gave were were of middle class people, and yes, they did well, but the abuses that happened were mostly targeted at lower class people. 
You seem to be saying the clerical abuse crimes and their cover-ups and the revelations about Magdalene laundries or mother and baby homes are terrible, but we're making them into a lens through which we assess all of Catholicism in Ireland, and you think that's not fair. But for the people affected by those events and their relatives and friends and the people bearing witness to them in the media, the pain they caused and the loss of trust they brought about are surely legitimate lenses for viewing the church. Absolutely every story should be told and everybody has the entitlement to tell their story and the more stories that are told, the better. And uh, every injustice should be uh, opened up to to investigation and redress given, absolutely. And there is actually a huge amount of material uh, about um, the Magdalene homes, about the mother and baby homes, about the abuse. It's enormous, actually. And that's all, that's, that's very good. And I hope, actually, that I would like to see more archives opened up so we can see every single truth come come forward but i'm resident in in kent in england although i uh, i'm in ireland every month i can also see a little bit of a wider lens as well and we do sometimes need to have perhaps a little bit of comparative sociology as well i mean something like the treatment of of unmarried mothers unmarried mothers until historically quite recently faced stigma everywhere. There's a very good book by Jane Robinson, the English social historian called In the Family Way, and she researched it from 1915 to 2015. And she found people in England in 2015 who still wouldn't claim their pensions because they were so ashamed of the stigma of having been born out of wedlock. And she characterises this really very well. There are 450,000 British women who are in a campaign to ask the British government to apologise for forced adoptions, which they underwent from the end of the Second World War right up to uh, modern times. Ireland wasn't the only country where these rather cruel rules were upheld, uh, 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 although Ireland was much later in abolishing in abolishing things like institutions for Magdalene homes. But then you've got Sweden, which sterilised uh, uh, unmarried mothers. France sterilised 15,000 unmarried mothers. They were described as moral imbeciles, you know. So you do have to see that this was in the context of a social attitude which prevailed in so many societies. I take your point that international comparisons help us understand our own context. But I think the point here is surely that we're not just talking about states and secular moral values that govern the running of homes or healthcare. We're talking about the church. And surely that means we're talking about God's love. We're talking about membership of the body of Christ. And doesn't that require that we hold it to a higher standard than the state? Shouldn't it have been 
prophetic, loving, caring, trustworthy. It's taken for granted that state bodies can fail, but for the church to fail in these ways, it's a, it's a question about the church, really, when it comes to Ireland, isn't it? A lot of people have made that point and they feel exactly so that the church should be held to a higher standard. But I think the church is made up of us ordinary people. And I mean, that is a, a, a sort of bracing truth to understand that, you know, priests are men, nuns are women. They have their difficulties. They have their problems. And they also, unfortunately, as with teachers, for example, these professions also attract people who are really have deep personal problems and it all institutions which deal with children that come up again and again in examination of British institutions uh, where, you know, the public schools, the boarding schools uh, ha are shown to have attracted absolutely sadistic schoolmasters, you know, who, who beat and sexually abused young boys again and again and this comes out there's a very good book called Sad Little Men by Richard Beard which, who looks at private boarding schools in Britain and, and really uh, it's the same story again of not only attracting people who are deeply perverted in this sense but actually covering up and allowing them or passing them on to another school. The same pattern goes on. Of course, the church should have done better and the church should have known better. But that's the way that history works. We have to look at the mistakes and apologise and correct and have an investigation of justice and try to not let it happen again. Mary Kenny, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. We're joined now by Rachel Fallon, who's a leading Irish visual artist working in sculpture, drawing, photography and performance. Her work deals with themes of protection and defence in domestic realms and addresses the topic of motherhood and women's relationships to society. Rachel, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much, Siobhan, and thank you for inviting me today. You're one of a group of acclaimed artists who were commissioned to produce the Magdalene series, a series of multimedia artworks um, that took place at the Rua Red Gallery in Tala. And your piece with Alice Maher, The Map, is moving to the Hugh Lane Gallery from the 18th of October. How do you and your fellow artists draw on the figure of Mary Magdalene for this long examination uh, at Ruarad? Each of, of the various artists, so there was Amanda Coogan we started with, um, and then there was Alice and myself with the map, and then Jesse Jones with the tower, and Grace Dias is coming after us. And it was really about looking at the figure and the context and the whole ideology and myth of Mary Magdalene and what she means within both society and as a personage and trying to extrapolate something from that that would have meaning for today. And we were really mindful of, you know, acknowledging a lot of the histories that had actually happened in her name and, and how her name was abused and utilised by institutions, really, and that this was really problematic, but also about how we could 
open up that dialogue around a lot of the the problematics of of Mary Magdalene and kind of create some sort of space for discourse around how it would be approached nowadays and how we can look at these themes because they're not finished and they're not forgotten. Was the series designed to directly respond to the Magdalene Laundrie's report? No, so the series was was instigated to investigate the figure of Mary Magdalene, I suppose is possibly the best way to do it. While Alice and myself decided with the map, we were really interested in acknowledging the Magdalene Laundries and the Mother and Baby Commissions and the various things, and they have their place within our, you know, textile sculpture. We also were really careful to say we weren't actually offering any sort of idea around, you know, that this was a resolved issue or take anybody's stories mm. on. So that was something that was really important to us. But I, we felt it had a place within the map. Could you tell us more about this piece? Because it's a startling piece. It's uh, on a, a huge scale. You've said it's a textile sculpture, but maybe tell us more. So the map is six 0.2 meters wide by approximately four meters long. So it, it, it really is big. <laughs> and it's a textile sculpture rather than a hanging or a wall piece hmm. because you have to navigate it. So it's mm. in the center of the room and you approach it from the obverse and you have to find your way around it. And in this, we were really looking at ideas of how maps are used and what a map actually is because they've been very much co-opted for you know various power structures patriarchal structures um so these things were were really about showing who owned what and who had domination over what we didn't want it to be polemic or didactic we wanted to open up a, a, a discussion um, but we also wanted to acknowledge a lot of the things that had happened. So, you know, we have an island called the System, which is like an upstairs, downstairs land with the footprint of all the architectural footprint of all the Magdalene laundries at the top of it. And then Cariadads, which are like the little Virgin Mary statues from Lourdes. And then, you know, what is going on underneath? And it's called the System. But there's also other areas like lawland, which were very much about the state and, and how the state enacted laws that were very much aligned with the values of the time, which, you know, were Catholic values and, and how that was utilised against the women um, who lived in this country and, and, and further afield. And then bring in humour. So we have Slag Island, you know, which was where all the bold people live, uh, where every street in, in a certain area is called Mary. You know, it's playing around with both the idea of how incredibly bizarre this is to look back at and and think how were we co-opted into some of these ideas, you know, and how did we actually believe that? And at the same time, understanding that this is the reality for many people who were within this system and we don't want to make fun of it either, that we're very, you know, careful to acknowledge that these histories, you know, are not resolved and that we offer also no resolution to it. Earlier, we heard uh, writer and journalist Mary Kenny saying that the abuses committed by the Catholic Church shouldn't define it and that they should be placed within the context, a wider context of widespread institutional abuse. 
She said that human beings are flawed and that abusers are drawn to every kind of institution where they would seek to or gain a, a, a safe harbour to, to commit their crimes. Would you agree or do you feel that that's letting the Catholic Church off the hook? And particularly when we think of the figure of the Magdalene, the supposedly penitent, the supposedly sinful, uh, supposedly saved by a man, woman, that persists in, in the use of her imagery. Well, it's interesting to start even with, you know, the use of her imagery. We only know her by name in Ireland. She doesn't exist as actually a personage, really. You know, there's a few um, paintings of her in the National Gallery, but not within the Magdalene Laundry system at all itself. She wasn't there as as a person. You know, there was the Virgin Mary and the Sacred Heart. So we don't know her in the same way as, you know, in France or in, in Spain or Italy, where she is venerated as a saint or in the Netherlands. There's these beautiful depictions of her as a preacher. You know, she doesn't exist like that. She's quite parsed of all humanity in Irish context. And I think that's part of the the problem with the whole Magdalene institution and the whole how it sat within the church institution. So yes, I do think Mary Kenny is actually letting the church off the hook big time. While I acknowledge the context and I think, yes, these were hard times, it was really led by that sort of ascetic lack of love for the body and for one another and, you know, particularly for women. I mean, we had churching, we had all of these various different rites that were supposed to cleanse women of their badness in a way after having children. And that's really problematic. You know, the body was seen in Ireland as a huge site of, of, of sin, you know, and I think that's not acknowledged and the lack of love is is not acknowledged. And these things really led to a lot of the abuses and led to how they became so, so institutionalised. And the church is an institution. It might be made up of members, but it is actually an institution and it works as a hierarchy and an institution. So why can't it be held accountable? And when we talk about acts of contrition, for example, you know, part of the act of contrition is acknowledging what went on. And then there's truth and making reparation. And not all of these things have happened. So I really think there's a lot to still be talked about. And I think there's a lot to be still listened to because Mary talks very eloquently about, you know, other stories and, you know, there being a place for other stories. And that's all very well, but we actually have to sit down and listen to the other stories and acknowledge them in that way and try to at least have some sort of sense of reconciliation around that. And as far as I can see, that really has been skirted around and the whataboutery that comes around of going, well, here was such and such a bad thing was happening and there such and such a bad thing was happening doesn't really cut it as far as I'm concerned because this was Ireland and, and we really have to deal with this in our own context. Rachel Fallon, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. And that's it from The Leap of Faith. Until next week, thank you for listening. The Leap of Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Sheila Neve Wheel. The researcher was Sinead Kennedy and Kate Brennan-Harding. The broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland and the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. You can email the programme at faith at rte.ie.